1: talking defines part of what makes us human. We're almost constantly in dialogue, but to what end, what purpose does all this conversation serve, both for individuals and for society? And what's happening in our brains when we talk? Well, Shane O'Mara has been thinking about those questions for his book, Talking Heads, the new science of how conversation shapes our worlds. So, welcome to you.
0: And thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here.
1: So let's just start with the mechanics, if we can, because you've got some interesting stuff on on what's happening in our brain when we have a conversation. C- can you talk us through the rather surprisingly brief interactions we tend to have?
0: Yeah, so uh, obviously we talk a lot but we uh, and we talk to other people, but what we're not very good at doing is understanding just how complicated our conversations with others are and uh, what the, the kind of the elements of those conversations are. So Just to give you a a, a simple example in order to have a dialogue we have to take turns Uh, that means we have to switch between one speaker and another and one person has to listen to what the other person has to to say and vice versa and the switch between one speaker and another on average is about 200 milliseconds that is about a fifth of a second In other words, uh, we're we're responding in conversation about as quickly as it is possible for the nervous system to respond to anything. Prototypical example that we give is uh, the runner at the Olympics getting going when they hear a report from a starting pistol. That's how quick uh, our responses are in conversation.
1: Right. And that's just day in, day out without even thinking about it. Not just day in, day out. Moment in, moment out. (laughs) Right, and and then what other elements of, of conversation have you been able to identify? I mean, one of the interesting things I thought was that we anticipate, the reason we could do it so quickly is we anticipate what people are about to say.
0: Yeah, so conversation um, would be impossible without prediction. We're able to predict what people are about to say. You can, you can t- do this in a variety of different ways. One is, is to measure electrical activity in the brain And use that to kind of predict what the person that you're listening to is about to say. And uh, we do this all the time in conversation, but we're not really aware of it. But uh, when one person is speaking to you, you have to mobilize all the information that you have about the topic that you're engaged in. You have to focus your attention on that topic. You must get the words in the correct order. So the motor programming must work. And then you must speak. In other words, to do this, you have to have a whole lot of things, processes going on at once, you're multitasking, and in order to understand where the conversation is going, you must be predicting it ahead of time. It's not a passive process, it's a really active process. Active inference is the phrase that's sometimes used.
1: I don't know if there's any research on this, but I can imagine if you were talking to someone from an entirely different culture, you know, China... Let's say, which is you know quite has quite different values and and understandings to the West. If a Westerner was talking to a Chinese person, would the conversation take longer because they can't anticipate quite as easily what their interlocutors can I, I I don't know
0: that there's any research on that, but any research on it would be confounded by the lack of fluency or otherwise of the one person and the other in the other's native language. You be so two bilingual
1: he, people, yeah.
0: You, you have to assume two bilingual people, in which case then you're going to be confounded by the fact that uh, uh, you will have absorbed at least some of the assumptions of the other person's language and community in learning their, their language. So that's a really difficult one to tease apart.
1: Uh, what about what's happening in the brain and, and the technology for scanning brains as we talk and you know, as we feel things and listen to things and say things, what 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 are we learning from that new technology that enables us to see inside the brain?
0: Yeah, so there's been an absolute revolution in, in the last 20 or 30 years in technologies that allow us to see into the brain while the brain is at work. And uh, one of the remarkable things is that we see, or we can see millisecond by millisecond the kinds of activity that occurs in differing brain areas. So to give you a, a, a very simple example, if you're listening to somebody else speaking, you can see a sequence of activity uh, that comes obviously through activations through the ears into the uh, auditory areas of the brain. But you also see activity in other parts of the brain that are involved in paying attention, that are involved in memory and all of those kinds of things. And they're all happening simultaneously and they allow you to participate in and keep the conversational thread. And given the fact that we speak to each other so easily so fluently so easily all the time uh, keeping conversational threads doesn't seem to be a very difficult thing to do but if you're paying only partial attention to what the other person is saying you can sometimes fill in the bits that you've missed uh, we've all had the experience uh, in classrooms being picked on by a teacher where we've been looking out the window or whatever and we've managed to fill in from the last two or three words that the teacher has said to us where we're supposed to be in the lesson or whatever but In the case of dementia and in the case of of certain types of brain damage, these processes actually become remarkably difficult. And holding attention to the conversational thread, understanding what it is that the person you're speaking to is expecting to get from you in the conversation and maintaining that through time turns out actually to be something that is very, very sensitive to damage to particular brain areas.
1: I I don't, don't know if you heard the radio reports or, or read about the recent research on Pink Floyd's Brick in the Wall being played to some people and the brain scan being taken of what people were how they were receiving that music and then recreating from the brain scans the music which was sort of muddy and not quite there but definitely the same song in a
0: sense that's not entirely surprising there's been a a kind of a an a drive to try and recreate it's called neural decoding what it is that the brain sees when you're played stimuli like this and uh, this has been done for short sequences of movies for example and other things uh, over the last few years and it it has been known for quite some time that if you put electrodes into certain parts of the inner ear, I don't need to go into the details, you can get a reasonably high fidelity uh, decoding of this, the auditory stimulus that the person is listening to. So what it is that they're hearing. Um, and we shouldn't be entirely surprised by this, but equally we shouldn't be terribly scared by this. Uh, the techniques that are used are highly invasive. They require lots and lots of uh, participants and they take a very, very long time to extract the signal from the noise so i I think worries about cognitive privacy which i think are reasonable in this case don't really terribly apply
1: right but you can imagine a day when you know if the technology improves which generally it tends to do that someone could watch your brain activity and work out what you're thinking.
0: Yeah, but there's an easier way to do that, and that's to have a conversation with you.
1: <laughs> well, yes. <I> was, <laughs> and it's a much just... cheaper way. Uh, and it's a much more effective way. Well, <laughs> and... I was going to get onto that, because you do talk about um, the value of rapport and that being a way of getting uh, you know, the truth out of a conversation. But the fact is that uh, you know, people uh, can resist it, and you know, all those criminals... Who say they're not guilty when, in fact, they are guilty, and they they stick to their story. I mean, it's not like conversation always works in that respect, is it? No, that's absolutely true. Uh, but it, let's go back just to, for a moment to the uh, the
0: invasion of your privacy for uh, just for a second. Um, they, they, to make these kinds of experiments work, you have to have, you have to have cooperative subjects. You have to have people who aren't moving when they're in the scanner. You have to have a whole lot of things in place beforehand. And if you want to confound the imaging, uh, it's really easy. All you have to do is change the rate at which you breathe. Uh, all you have to do is deploy your attention somewhere else. All you have to do is nip your tongue. All you have to do is squeeze your hand. There are lots and lots of ways of throwing this off and in ways that you can't recover uh, the signal. So I, I think it, this idea that we're going to be you know, hooked into Neuralink's and uh, Elon will be listening into us is, is really for the birds. It, 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 it's not going to happen. Now, just to come to the rapport for a moment, um, it is clearly the case that there is an image out there of uh, criminals who will want to stick to their story. However, I think there's been a revolution in the way that policing addresses this issue over the last 30 to 40 years. And it's been led principally by uh, investigators in the UK, uh, resulting from the Police and Criminal Evidence Act in uh, the early 1980s. And the consequence has been that police forces the Irish police forces like this the Norwegian police forces, the same the u k has as I said has been the leader in this, are not seeking confessions. Uh, what they're seeking to do is to get the person to tell their story, and uh, they do this in ways that are not oriented towards confession based evidence. what they 're trying to do is to probe the person through the course of of an interview in a respectful way to tell their story. And the data actually on this are really quite remarkable. Most people, most of the time, are cooperative, and most people, most of the time, will speak, and most people, most of the time, will happily give up the rights uh, under the law not to speak in order to be heard. And we, we humans have this kind of prepotent response when we're asked questions. It's remarkably difficult to suppress, uh, especially when you're having a, a close encounter like that, your natural urge to give your side of the story. It, it's a very, very difficult thing to do. We, we see actors doing it on television, but that doesn't reflect the reality of, of investigative interviewing in police stations.
1: I, I did um, interviews on the radio for, you know, I've been doing this for sort of 30 years. And one of the things I, I noticed is if you stay silent, even with quite a sort of, in you know, a quite a hostile interview, uh, We're trying to hold someone to account, maybe. The interviewee is desperate to fill the silence. Pe- people cannot bear the silence. It may be partly because it's on the radio and they're aware of that. But it seems to me, wh- yeah, wh- what is the role of silence in conversation?
0: Yes, yeah, so the, there is a, a, a actually a, a, a small literature on what's called the strategic role of silence in uh, I- interviewing. And uh, the idea is very simple, that when you're interviewing somebody, and you've already intuited this from uh, the work that you've been doing, that not speaking uh, when you're interviewing is just as important as speaking. Uh, And uh, an NCIS investigator I know says regularly to people he trains, uh, you have two ears and one mouth, so listen twice as long as you speak, uh, which I think originally goes back to Epictetus or Cicero or somebody. but the, the urge to speak, to fill the silence, uh, really is something that is very, very difficult for people to resist. And just that moment of dead air, uh, as you would have it in the, uh, on, on the airwaves, or dead time uh, where there's just nothing, and the person who's speaking is very comfortable to just sit there and wait for you, is a very, very difficult thing to resist. So deploying silence appropriately is a really good prompt to elicit speech, paradoxically.
1: There was a presenter who was Irish, actually, like you, Terry Wogan in the UK, who, who used to um, try and leave silences as long as he could uh, in his radio programmes because he thought it, uh, yeah, it was good radio and it made the listener fill in the gap, as it were. Uh, but actually, there is a technical problem with it. With these radio stations now, if there's dead air for, I think it's over eight seconds, the whole thing closes down. <laughs> so you can't really do it. Anyway, uh, what about um, which I guess is is related to this conversation and trust? You had you you were talking about that in the book.
0: Yeah, so I, I, I guess something that's underrated in modern society uh, is the extent to which we trust each other and this conversation we're having today is a, a very very good example of this you and i have never met each other before and uh, this is the, the first time we're going to have our com- first time we've had a conversation together and we used an intermediary <laughs> to uh, to meet up with each other so there's a small chain of trust that that was extended between us in order for this to happen and uh, In turn, we rely upon a whole variety of technologies to ensure that this podcast will end up being available to other people. So we trust, trust, trust. We trust when we walk out the front door that the footpath isn't going to collapse, that the local council have uh, built it to to the appropriate standards. When we take the train to work, we trust in the, uh, the, the driver having been trained to the appropriate standard. And this trusting in others is something that happens from a very, very early point in life. Uh, there's a, a famous book on child development called "Trusting What We Hear," written by Paul Harris a, a number of years ago. And that there used to be this idea that uh, we should think of children as as uh, scientists in uh, in on a small scale testing hypotheses about their world. And Harris's point, and the, the point that many other developmental psychologists make, is that that can't be true. Children don't go about the world discovering things afresh for themselves. Instead, what they do is they ask other people and they trust what other people say. So I I give the simple example in the book of an elder saying to a child, don't eat those yellow berries. They're poisonous. The child probably won't eat them. The elder probably isn't a toxicologist. It may not be true that the yellow berries are poisonous. We don't know, Uh, but we will avoid them because we've been told to avoid them because we invest our trust in people in particular that we have a social
1: relationship with. We're going to talk in, uh, later on about uh, the role that conversation plays in building communities and institutions and even countries, nations. Uh, but just just before that, what I mean, slightly less importantly, perhaps, gossip has a role in regulating behaviour. You argue. Tell us about gossip.
0: Yeah, so gossip is really, really important, and uh, people give gossip a kind of a hard rap that they really probably shouldn't give it. So what do I mean by that? So let's imagine that you're going to work somewhere new. Uh, what do you want to do? What you want to do is find out quickly uh, who's up, who's down, who you can trust, who can get jobs done, who tells you that they will get jobs done and then does does nothing. All of those bits and pieces of tacit, implicit information that aren't written down in the formal uh, documentation associated with the the organization and this is true in life generally when you join a new sports club you want to know who will get things done will the subscription secretary actually do their job or is it actually somebody else who takes over from them or whatever it happens to be so we rely on gossip all the time as a kind of a cognitive shortcut to allow us to live our lives much more easily Um, it's a it's a good heuristic but we mistake uh, gossip in its benign sense and gossip in its malign sense. So we think of gossip as as, as something uh, where one person is telling untruths about another. And there is lots and lots of observational data to show that that's not true. But there's also a, a twist to gossip, which I think is really fascinating. And it's this, that we humans mentalize. And by that, I mean, uh, we think about what other people are thinking. Uh, And we do this all the time, Uh, and we do it to a remarkable degree. We worry about what other people think about us. And gossip is a really good way of regulating our own behavior because we don't want other people to speak to others badly of us because we know that that will corrode our position in society. So gossip actually is antithetical to secrets and uh, secret keeping. It's a really good way of piercing silences, and it's one that we, we kind of underestimate uh, in our societies at large.
1: Now then, another thing you talk about in the book—I wasn't sure—it was sort of, yeah, it's important to conversation, but also to so much else. I wasn't sure quite what you were saying about it. But memory and conversation—I mean, you—you you can't really have conversations without memory. But there are lots of things you can't do without memory, right?
0: Yeah. So uh, what I've tried to do in this book is bring together a couple of core ideas. One is—is is this idea that we humans engage in a constant traffic of conversation with each other. But um, what I do then is, is, is place it in the context of the operation of our memory systems. We have to know each other. We have to know our personal pasts. We have to have imagination, our exercise imagination uh, regarding our, our futures. And all of these come together when we talk to each other. So without memory, our conversations would be oriented around the present uh, because we can't interrogate our past. But paradoxically, uh, we can't really have conversations about the future because memory allows us to imagine the future. How do we know this? We know this because people who have damaged to the parts of the brain that are concerned with memory suffer deficits in imagining. Um, so if you ask them, what are you thinking at this moment, they'll tell you, and they can do this uh, with great ease. Ask them about what they did last week, can't really remember. Ask them what they're going to be doing next week or the week after next. And they'll say, hmm, pretty much what I'm doing now, they, they can't imagine alternative futures. We need memory in order to imagine different futures. And uh, I think this is something that has only really become understood probably in about the past 10 years or so.
1: There's a word that's been used an awful lot in the last five years, which is narrative. You know, everything's about narrative now, uh, whether it's politics or you know corporate advertising or you know, literature. Uh, it, it's it's all about narratives, and I, I you know there's an increasing understanding in in journalism that what people engage with are stories. You know, that it it doesn't matter. You can do a report on. Statistics or the rest of it, and no one really listens to it. But you just tell one story about one person in that statistic, and, and people engage. What, what, what have you been concluding about the role of narrative and stories?
0: So, I think it, this is a, a really good uh, uh, question uh, in terms of, of uh, how we've investigated memory. Um, and it's not really until the, in the past 10 or 20 or so years uh, that we've had the tools to allow us to investigate narrative. If you go back 100 years or more in the history of experimental psychology, a lot of the the kinds of techniques that were used to probe memory focused on things like word lists, nonsense syllables, alphanumeric lists of one sort or another. So kind of memory without any context and uh, there's always been a bit of a pushback against that view of memory most famously i think with the cambridge psychologist frederick bartlett who gave people passages to read usually uh, ones that would have been alien to their experience and then would come back and and uh, ask them days or weeks or months later about the contents of those passages and It turns out, actually, people are pretty good at learning word lists, but we're pretty good at forgetting them. Uh, So we forget about 70 or 80 percent of the word lists over a period of a few weeks to a few months. And we're pretty good at remembering narratives. But what we do is simplify the narrative. We extract a gist from it and details that uh, might be complex for us in terms of our own culture get translated into something that's much more familiar so the stories tend to end up being simplified and it's those simplified stories that uh, we remember and we do that in terms of our own personal story as well so if you track children over time from let's say the age of seven or eight through to the age of maybe 18 or 20 and you get them to tell their personal autobiography repeatedly over that period of time what they tell you changes what they regard as important changes. So the first day in school might be something very important to an eight-year-old or their last birthday might be a very important event. But by the time they're 16, those things are there if you probe them, but they're not the most salient within the story that uh, they tell themselves. And we do carry around with us a, a kind of a personal autobiography. And this is at the core of our Interactions with each other because we ask each other stuff about our personal stories all the time. And we don't tend to say, Well, I was born on the 10th of the 10th, 2010, or whatever it happens to be. You say, Well, I'm 14 and I go to such and such a school, and my parents are the following. In other words, we convert these bare bones things into a narrative because that's the easiest way for another person to consume it.
1: Yeah, well, I I guess when uh, a a child uh, or a young person changes the story about their life, they're just selecting different true facts, right? So, I mean, it could all be true, but it's just that they're thinking some things are more important at different stages of their development.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And what is important depends on your age. And of course, uh, uh, we have this phenomenon known as the reminiscence bump, where if uh, you get people to recall across the course of their lives events that uh, that they can look back upon. Uh, you get a big bump in recall in the teen years and the early twenties when there's lots of change and there's lots of things happening and it settles down a bit in, in the decades after. So you have this kind of intensification of development and intensification of social roles in particular that you engage in during your teenage years. And uh, you get a consequent effect on memory and, in turn, that enriches the kind of conversation that you can have with others.
1: But we, we, we need to get onto false narratives and, and uh, post-truth and all that. Because, I mean, one one thing, I recently made a podcast about uh, a hijack. And there were two passengers in, if you like, 1C and 1D, let's call it. You know, so they were on either side of the aisle at the front of the plane. And a man was shot dead between them. This is in 1981 in... Um, where did that happen? Afghanistan. And this guy was shot dead, and they were within, let's say, two feet. And I interviewed them both and asked them to recall and describe it. And one said the body was taken to the front of the plane and thrown off, and the other said the body was taken to the back of the plane and thrown off. It was such a massive sort of difference on 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 such an enormous event. I mean, to see someone killed right in front of you. I couldn't understand it. How... The memory could have been that false, but somehow, and I think I know which one, one of them misremembered it. Yeah, and misremembering is very, very common, especially under stress. And uh, this
0: is something that we, again, terribly underestimate in society. Now, we've had in courts, of course, laws to do with uh, and rules to do with how people are questioned. Leading questions, for example, are forbidden in in, uh, the courtroom. And investigators have become wise to this over uh, recent years. And we know in the US, for example, the Innocence Project has uh, resulted in the freeing of many, many people who are misidentified on the basis of eyewitness evidence, um, because DNA evidence has now come to prove uh, their innocence. I believe there's a very salient and recent case in the UK of a, a chap who spent, I think, 17 years in jail recently, uh, again, on the basis of eyewitness evidence. And the the reality is that just because something has happened beside you doesn't mean that you are paying necessarily deep attention uh, to what was going on. Did you close your eyes? Did you drop your head? Was there a a lot of movement around? Uh, Were you paying a lot of attention to the blood on the ground or whatever it happens to be? And in simulations uh, where people probe people who are under simulated assault what you find is people don't look at faces they look at the knife they look at the gun they look away uh from the face of the person who's attacking them because the face is not important the hands are important uh so there's there are things that we can uh, be led astray by and then of course we go back through memories and we replay them and we may misremember a, a salient element we may discuss it with somebody and that contaminates it Person in the aisle on the left might have averted their head and spoken to the person beside them, and they've forgotten that they did that. Uh, They may have misperceived a a movement. Uh, Who knows what? You don't have any kind of visual evidence. You know, there's no video recording to tell you exactly what that person was paying attention to at that time. And the problem is that the confidence that people have in their own memory and the what we might call the veridicality, the the accuracy, uh, the empirical accuracy of their memory it can be two different things.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I, I mean, I, I actually got I, I witnessed a car crash where someone was badly injured and and gave a a statement, and then the, the insurers all had a big fight about it, and it was about sort of six years later I got asked by a court to describe what happened. And I have to say, I refused to do it. I said, look, I I simply cannot remember it as well as I will have done in that statement taken immediately after the event. And so I'm not going to say anything except read out that statement, because how could I possibly remember it better six years later? Uh, And it it, it, it seems to me that time plays a part in this. I mean, I I have heard it said that as you recall an event, you can somehow lay down a, a new memory of it. And that's where the problem arises. Both of those things
0: are true. I think your your urge not to go on the stand and give fresh evidence was the correct one,
1: <laughs> because they didn't like it. They didn't like it at all. They said, "No, you, it's your obligation to do this." And I was like,
0: "Yeah." And just read out your contemporaneous statement. Yeah, what, yeah. You know, it's by far the better thing to do. And I, 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 this is a, a, another thing I, you've just hit on something very important, which I, I don't ter- deal with. Directly uh, in the book, but I, I do indirectly, and it's this idea that uh, when you recall things, memories become labile and uh, they can be overwritten. So I, I give an example of uh, in the book of uh, how uh, when you repeatedly recall memories in a group context of a, of a film that you've watched, where people that you're talking to deliberately they're primed to do this, misremember an element of that memory that you come to believe on about 60% of occasions, what the group consensus is. So that means that there's an interaction between what you're recalling and what you're hearing. And uh, the group consensus overrides the the recall that you engage in. And there's a good reason for this. It goes back to this issue of trust that I mentioned at the start. We are bounded within our own heads and we trust in uh, the judgment of others because we find ourselves regularly in situations where we're kind of pushing at the limits of our knowledge and we may not be certain. So going along with what the community knows is a a very good way of getting by in our complex social worlds. Yeah,
1: conformity is a very powerful force. Absolutely, yes. Mm. What what about uh, this, this material you've got at the end of the book about the role of conversations in creating communities? So, I mean, you make the claim that nations are Created basically by conversations. I'll push back in a minute on it a bit, but what just what's your idea about that?
0: Okay, so the the idea is very straightforward, and it, it, it's based on the analysis of the nationalism that uh, Benedict Anderson, the the uh, political scientist, engaged in, and it, it's this idea that nations at their core are kind of imagined communities. If you go back to the African plains, countries didn't exist; uh, there were no borders in nature apart from physical borders this is something that's a the Westphalian kind of settlement is something that has happened over the last few hundred years. And it's a process that continues. Depending on the list that you look at, uh, there have been maybe 20, 30 new countries that have come into existence over the uh, the past uh, 30 or so years. And the country that I'm in has been reshaped uh, very considerably over the past century or so. I'm sure there will be changes to come again in the future. And the, the point is that uh, the affinity that we, as members of a nation, feel toward each other is not a physical thing out there in the world. It's it's something that has to reside within a set of claims that we make uh, about each other. In other words, it's something that uh, uh, we have to learn, and it's something that uh, we express to each other over the course of of, uh, our lives. Now, the, the claim that Anderson makes is that this kind of way of thinking about the world uh, would have been impossible uh, in the absence of the spread of literacy, in the absence of the spread of books, and the absence of the, the kind of the understanding of maps and uh, history. So, to my mind, these are all very cognitive ways of looking at the world. Uh, if we had brains that were designed slightly differently, if we, if we were a little bit more like our chimpanzee cousins, uh, we might be very territorial. But we would not be able to engage in in the the kind of widespread social organization that allows a a, a city like Tokyo with 40 million people to exist. Or if we were like orangutans, the same would be true. We just would never come together apart from uh, for reproduction. Uh, So we humans occupy this kind of cognitive sweet spot that allow us to mentalize together, to imagine futures together, to agree what the limits of our nation are and what the where our nation ends and where another nation begins
1: okay well I mean that answer sort of it it takes into account what I was thinking really a bit which is it's it's not just conversation you know as you say it's it's literature it's art it's documents but you could add it's it's violence it's uh, economic power you know there are lots of factors that go into the creation of a community or a nation
0: oh of course of course but at, at, at the core somebody has to sit down and say this is ours that's theirs we're taking theirs we want it to be ours. Uh, you know, the, these conversations between revolutionaries sitting around tables saying such and such an occupation or occupying force has to go. Who's with us? These, you know, these kinds of conversations are, are core to how, as a community, we, we imagine together uh, what our community should be. And we've seen this in country after country, time after time. You know, they, they, uh, I've, I've only read some of them, but the Federalist Papers is a really, really good example of a, a bunch of guys, and in this ta- and in that time it was guys, sitting around together imagining what a future nation could be, uh, and that nation became uh, the United States. And we see it when we look, uh, again, just to be a bit more parochial, when you look back 120-odd uh, years where Irish nationalism was concerned, again, it was conversations about what the nation should be, uh, and the revival of the 1890s, gave way to the the revolution that subsequently occurred. And this happens all around the world all the time. You see it in all sorts of places. So I, I think conversation is core to this, but it's not all.
1: Since you mentioned the US and Ireland, I get to just something occurred to me as, as uh, after you'd mentioned it, which was that when you made your bilingualism point about you know speaking with a Chinese person, you know, if, if, if I was speaking with an American sharing a language or, or an Irish person sharing a language, uh, there could still be difficulties me uh, making the correct assumptions about what they're saying because or what they're thinking or about to say because of the, the, the cultural gap. I mean, that must be right. Oh, that, well, that,
0: that's true. And George Bernard Shaw recognized that, what, 100 years ago when he said the US and the UK are two countries divided by a common language.
1: Yeah, I guess <laughs> and, that's his point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And uh, we know this today when, uh, you, you know, when uh, in, a, in, a, in an economic context, when Europeans talk about liberalism, uh, they mean something quite different to <laughs> <laughs> what uh, Americans mean by liberalism. And so the, the, these words are, are uh, to, to be uh, to maybe a slightly contentious example,
1: when the EU talks about federalism and when the UK talks about federalism, we mean different things. Now then, uh, what surprised you most about the, the research? What, what, what was the moment when you went, gosh, I never thought that? The moment actually was uh, when I started
0: writing the book. I, I, I was going to tell what I thought was going to be a fairly straightforward story about autobiographical memory and what it means to talk to others and to tell our personal stories. So this kind of self-reporting that we engage in all the time. And um, as I I was writing the book, I, I had written quite a bit of material that fitted within that theme. So around ideas to do with investigative interviewing, for example, and a whole lot of other things like this. And that material has not ended up in the book because uh, about halfway through, I started to think about uh, some thought experiments. Uh, How would we construct a nation uh, or a community around people who suffer from amnesia, for example, and the answer is you can't. And uh, I I then read uh, Anderson's book, uh, Imagine Communities. And uh, I think that was the point at which uh, the book changed direction. That uh, it caused me to really think about how it is that uh, we can get from having a skull full of neurons on the one hand to these amazing nations that we have on the other. There must be a continuity. There has to be. There's no other way for this to have happened. It has to be based around the ideas that we humans are cognitive agents, and I think that the key thing is is kind of selecting the level of analysis. Thinking about nations in terms of neurotransmitters is a really stupid thing to do. What we need to do is to, is to think about it at, at the appropriate level of analysis. And what's that level? Well, it's to do with imagination. It's to do with uh, how we think about things together, how we work together as collectives, and uh, how we can imagine the future and how we reinterpret our past. So choosing that level of analysis and then putting this book in, in that kind of context that uh, there is a, a continuity between the the brain full of neurons, as I've said, and the nations that we work in together.
1: Just finally, this series is called The Future Of, and I've always contrived on every single episode over a year now uh, to find a way of talking about the future. But I'm struggling with this. I mean, what's the future of of talking? It's just more talking, right? Uh, Well, I suppose the future of
0: talking is more talking. But I think we humans are very self-reflective and we can get better at talking. So I give some examples in the book. One is the idea of deep canvassing uh one of the things that it is very difficult to do generally is to get people to change their minds about something you know there's the the old line about how scientific theories uh die as their their promulgators die rather than them being uh, uh subject to empirical test uh, and how bad ideas in society die as their promulgators die but what we can actually do uh, and I think the science of rapport uh, and, the, the, and the, the kind of research around that shows that if we meet each other in a respectful way and we listen to what the other person is trying to say and try to understand where it is that they're coming from, uh, we can actually have conversations that are very, very helpful and that can change the trajectory of a society. Now, that isn't just airy words. And I, I'll give uh, two local examples um, We've used in this country, in Ireland, uh, citizens' assemblies in the last uh, eight to ten years to change our constitution. And we, we have a series of them running at the moment where randomly selected members of the public with a chair who's usually an outsider have conversations in different places around the country with lots and lots of expert input and generate a report. And these are televised live and the reports tend to be a matter of great national debate. And the the two major constitutional changes that we had, the one on the the right to marriage and the other on repealing the uh, referendum on, on abortion, were both overturned or were both voted on and favorably and decisively as a result of these deliberative assemblies. So we have ways of talking to each other. We should be willing to experiment with new ways. And these kinds of novel ways deep canvassing on the one hand, where we listen respectfully, and uh, citizens' assemblies on the other, where we really hear that actually the people were ahead of the politicians can be really important ways of of driving conversation in the future.
1: Well, thank you very much, uh, Shane O'Mara, for talking to us about talking.
0: Thank you. That was really nice.